excited to be with you. My name is Jeremiah Morris, the pastor of Seven Mile Road. So thank you for the prayers that you just prayed over me and our community, which is meeting right now down in the city. It is always a privilege to be here. I've gotten to come several times over the last few months. The last time was, was several months ago, and I have just decided to begin to treat our relationship like an old friendship. Uh, and my aim this morning is to pick up our conversation right where we left off, like you do with that good old friend that you just pick up the phone and pick up right where you were. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, several months ago, for those of you who were here, you know that we were introduced to this character, King Saul, and we were posing a question. I was inviting you on a journey with me to play detective, trying to figure out how it was that King Saul's life how it was that he, all of his potential was kind of squandered, how it sifted through his fingers like grains of sand. Because we were introduced to King Saul and he was a head taller than everyone else. He was handsome, he was wealthy, he was anointed with the spirit of God and called to lead. Yet his story ended with him falling on a sword on the battlefield. He was distressed and alone embarrassed and in fact his death and the subsequent destruction of the people was a declaration of the world look at how these idolatrous nations have triumphed over Israel and so we're left with this question rooting back through the story of Saul is how does someone with all of this blessing and gifting and opportunity how does that their story end like this how is it that a path veers off course and so our first time taking a crack at this, we looked at the, the first kind of chapter of Saul's story. We said the first way that we knew he was going to squander his potential was that he was incredibly self-conscious. He thought about himself first and most. And I made an argument last time that that's the first way that we can begin to fritter away all of the potential and the blessing that God has for us in our story. We're gonna jump back into Saul's story and continue to play detective, trying to figure out how it was that he squandered his potential. And what we're going to learn today when we dig into this, this next passage in Saul's life is this. We forfeit God's blessings in our life when we allow our circumstances to determine our decisions. If we are a circumstance-driven people, if we just live in this way where our circumstances are demanding of us and affecting us in such a way that our next steps were determined by those circumstances, then we are people that are beginning to squander the potential that God has for us. You may know someone or you yourself may have been in that spot. I certainly have where when asked, hey, how are things going? That you say something along the lines of, well, under these circumstances, okay. And I think what we're going to learn today is that if we could pull the, the authors of Scripture, if we could have them come and be with us, I think they in response would say, well, what are you doing under those circumstances? Get out from under there. They don't determine you. They don't, they don't demand of you your next decisions and your next steps that we actually have the ability to respond in the power of the Spirit differently in the face of tough circumstances. And so we're going to pay attention to King Saul's life in this next chapter and see how it was that he allowed circumstances to determine his decisions and hopes that we can take a different path. So with that being said, I'd invite you to open the scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're gonna start reading in verse eight and we'll read down through verse 15. Permit me to remind you of what the prophet Isaiah said about the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse eight, the prophet says this, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. 
This means that there's lots of things in the physical world that are beckoning to us and inviting us to build our lives on them, but they are faulty and not trustworthy. But when we come to the word of God, we're in touch with something eternal and life-giving and powerful. You would be really wise to pay attention to the word of God today. 1 Samuel chapter 13, let's start in verse eight and we'll read down through 15. He waited seven days, he being King Saul, the time that was appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel rose and he went up from Gilgal and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So we're intersecting Saul's story again. If we had read the chapter before, what we would know is this, is he's just won a great victory. He and his son Jonathan are fighting a battle on two fronts and they secured one victory against the Philistines, but now we're intersecting a story where things are starting to come undone. The first thing that we're going to learn in this passage is we're paying attention to Saul in this moment is this, circumstances are never what we expected circumstances never pan out exactly how we expected. And it's certainly the case for Saul in this moment. His circumstances are not panning out the way that he had hoped. He secured a victory and he's starting to feel like we're making some progress. And then all of a sudden the Philistines in the previous chapter gathered an army of 30,000 with chariots and they've surrounded he and his son, Jonathan. The enemy facing Saul is far greater, far more overwhelming than he could have ever imagined. And not only is the enemy greater, but his own compatriots, the soldiers that were supposed to be standing with him, we read it in verse eight, that the people were scattering from him, that those who are supposed to stand with him are running scared. And the verses just previous to our passage, we read that when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, the people hid themselves. Now listen to the way the author describes it. He says, they hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And you kind of feel like he's going, they just were hiding wherever they could. The idea being that the men that were supposed to stand with Saul and be bold and ready to fight, were supposed to support him in this call, are running. They're even diving into tombs, it says. You get the idea of just the absurdity of them moving bones out of the way and quaking behind these tombs going, we are just looking for somewhere where we can be safe. The enemy is great, the community is scattering, and the passage says that he's searching for Samuel and Samuel's nowhere to be found. Samuel is the representation of the presence and the power of God for Saul. It's the, it's the prophet who's supposed to be there, 
who's supposed to come in power and speak on God's behalf. And so as his enemy is great and his community is scattering, he's looking for God and he's going, I don't know where God is in the midst of this. So we intersect Saul's story with this recognition. His circumstances are not what he expected. And if we're all can just be honest for a moment, if we can just pay attention, we would all own up to the same reality, wouldn't we? That circumstances are never what we expected. We know this existentially. We know it emotionally. We know it historically. It's just true that it never pans out quite the way we thought. That might be true for you today. And the truth is, some of you may be looking around at everyone else saying, everybody else seems like they basically have it all together. They, they look together, but if they knew what I was sitting in, what I was dealing with. And the truth is, that's every chair in the room at one level or another. Circumstances are never what we expected. It might be financially for you that you had this plan and the way that it unfolds that this, this job's gonna lead to that job and we've got this 10-year plan and then all of a sudden this, this thing gets lit and rolled into the room and it detonates and all of our plans that were so clear and clean all of a sudden are really confusing. We're going, well, gosh, everything just kind of changed overnight there. What do I do with that? You know, I remember when my wife and I bought the house that we're currently raising our, our family in, we bought a, a little ranch house, NRG stadiums, right in our backyard down in the medical center area. And uh, we bought this house, it was built in the 1950s and we were really excited and we shortly thereafter were pregnant with our second child and just excited about establishing life there. And we'd been there a few months you know, and when you're buying a house, you know how you work all of the numbers and make sure, okay, yeah, this is good. We've got a plan. We can do this. And a few months in, none of the, uh, none of the drains in our house were draining. The, the toilets weren't flushing. The t tub was not draining. Nothing. Now, I'm not like a Mr. Fix-It. I don't know a lot about things and how they work, okay? But I did make the comment to my wife, I don't think this is supposed to happen. Like, I, I think this might be a problem. And uh, so we called someone who actually knows about these things and the plumber came out and did a, did a little look at what was going on and called me out into the backyard, almost like, a, I think, trying to shield Ashley's ears from what he was about to say, you know, like trying to have mercy on my wife. And so he called me out and said, hey, uh, so this is the deal. All of the pipes have collapsed. And so we're gonna have to get some backhoes in here. We're gonna dig everything up. We're gonna get some new pipes laid. We'll get you all ready to go. And he's kind of got a smile on his face and I was thinking, why are you smiling? Um, I thought, wow, that, uh, that sounds expensive, <laughs> right? And what I began to realize is that in all of our planning and budgeting for the purchasing of this house, nowhere in all the stuff that we had written down did I have written pipes collapse. You know, it, it was just one of those things. Circumstantially, we didn't plan for that. The circumstances were not what we expected financially. And all of a sudden, we were trying to figure that out together. Going, this is not what we drew up. It might be relationally. You know, my wife and I do a lot of counseling of young folks in the city, and we have these stories happen every so often where someone will sit on our couch and be sharing about what they're walking through. And it might be a young man or woman in their late 20s or early 30s and they say something along the lines of, you know, I just long to be married. This is not the way I drew up my plans. Not what I expected. You know that we had a girl say something along the lines of, you know, I've been planning my wedding since the sixth grade. That's what middle school girls do together. We get together at 11 p.m. when we should be asleep. We're up dreaming about what our wedding might look like. She said, I still have the folder 
with all the stuff that I cut out, but I don't have the guy. What am I supposed to do? This has not panned out like I thought it would. The expectations and all the dreams, you know, the circumstances are not what I expected. You know, for, for Ashley and I, one of the things we didn't realize when we were getting married is that we were moving to this zip code of just kind of sadness and loss. And saying yes to one another, you expect we're, saying, we're, we're igniting marital bliss, but what we didn't know was that there was just going to be a series of really devastating losses in our life that her mom died just before our wedding day, and then my brother died in a car wreck shortly thereafter, and our mentor died in a bicycle accident, riding the bike around the block. And, uh, and then we were living with a family at the time, and the youngest child, which was like a little brother to us, also died in a car wreck at 17. And uh, these four losses in pretty rapid succession in the early days of our marriage left us just going, is, is this... Is this just kind of the way it goes? Like it, because this is not the sort of circumstances we were expecting. This sort of perpetual sadness and loss. But the truth is, the circumstances are never what we expected. They just, they never will be. We live in a broken world and we interject brokenness into it with our own decision-making. And so here we sit with this recognition along with King Saul that there are circumstances at play that we didn't plan, we didn't ask for, they've thrust themselves upon us and we're left in this moment of saying, what are we gonna do about it? What are we gonna do in response? What we're gonna see in Saul's story is that he didn't think he had a choice. He thought his circumstances had determined his next steps for him. But what I want you to hear is this. We always have a choice. This is one of those places where we're going to watch the path veer off. We always have a choice. We have the conversation regularly in my home. Uh, my precious boys sitting here on the front row. You guys are doing great. Good work. Uh, every once in a while, it doesn't look like this. Just every once in a while, something will happen. You'll, you'll hear it from another room, the, the kerfuffle you know, the, the noise starts to go and I come in and I, my role as dad oftentimes is fight breaker upper. You know, I come in and go, okay, what's going on here? And peel them apart. And oftentimes in that moment, I even asked them just before the service to make sure that this is what we always say. And they, they immediately knew the answer. In this moment, I will ask, hey, what's going on? And it usually seems that it's the aggressor that will say something along the lines of, he just makes me so angry. He makes me so angry to which I always say the same thing. No one can make you angry. No one can make you angry. We rehearse that together, don't we guys? That you always have a choice. And to choose anger, that is a, that is a choice. That is your responsibility. And you don't have to choose that. Nobody can make you do that. He might be a nuisance. He might be poking at you or prodding at you, but you have a choice on what to do in response. And what we're gonna see is that Saul childishly believed I don't have a choice but what I want all of us to hear is that we do we do let's see how Saul responds when everything is is not going as expected in verse 9 what it says is this so Saul said bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering and he offered the burnt offering now Saul before God does not have the authority to make this offering that's not the king's responsibility. And so he is in sin. He's disobeying God's command on his life, but he's doing it because he's afraid. Feels like something has to be done. So 
It's interesting, he had also intended to do the burnt offering and the peace offering. He never gets to the peace offering. It says he offered the burnt offering in verse 9, verse 10. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Uh Uh-oh. The prophet just showed up as he's in the middle of sin. He's in the middle of sin. He hasn't even completed it. He's done half of it and Samuel shows up. And it says, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, now pay attention to his response. What he is going to do is he's going to rehearse his circumstances and make an argument that I didn't have a choice. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, my enemy was great, my community was leaving me and God was nowhere to be found. He's rehearsing his circumstances I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. See what Saul does when confronted by Samuel? He does this little Texas two-step. It's one, then two, one, then two. And quite frankly, I've gotten good at it over the years myself. The first step is that he punts on responsibility. Did you hear it? It's everybody else's fault. Everybody left me. The Philistines were there. And Samuel, by the way, you were supposed to be here. He just blamed it on everyone else. And then in the the second step, first step, punt on responsibility. Second step, cloak it in religious language. Make it sound nice. I was just trying to lay hold of the blessings of God. Is that so bad? Everybody else left me. It wasn't my fault. And all I wanted was the blessings of God. Come on, not that big of a deal, right? You see, Saul is convinced I didn't have a choice. I had to do this. The circumstances demanded it of me. And the truth is that that we often do the same. We often do the same when confronted by these tough decisions that he was motivated by fear and he wanted a shortcut. He's afraid and he's looking for the shortcut because to stay in this moment with all of the pressure and the fear mounting, it's terrifying. So he says, I'm just gonna take a shortcut to try to get through this. Rather than being patient and faithful, he's fearful and he takes a shortcut. And we often do the same. When we meet those financial struggles, when all of a sudden things aren't the way that we thought, we're tempted to take a shortcut I experience it in one way quite frequently in the community that I serve. We, we serve folks in addiction recovery and coming out of incarceration. And oftentimes I will be meeting with a guy that has been applying for jobs and trying to do things the right way. And he will have been turned down for six or seven jobs. And he'll say, you know what, Jeremiah, I know where I can go today and I can make all the money I need by nightfall. I know how to do it. I know the old hustle. I know where I can go. And to that moment, right when you start feeling like the the shortcut wooing you, that's where we need the community to step in. And we always say to them, no, 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 hold on, be patient, wait for the Lord. He's going to reveal himself in power. But do you feel it? Fear invites us to a shortcut. For you in financial struggles, it may not be that I'm going back to these old ways on the streets, but it might be one more credit card and a little more debt that rather than exercising self-control, rather than hemming back on our our means of life, that the circumstances are demanding it of me. And so we just begin to mount up debt as we continue to spend money that we don't have, confronting the difficult circumstances. We do so saying, under these circumstances, what else was I to do? Or it might be that 
when confronted with those financial realities, we quit being generous. We don't give to God's mission in the world because, well, how could we under these circumstances? And all of a sudden we begin to feel it, the call to be faithful and to be men and women of integrity, that when confronted with difficult circumstances that are not what we expected, we start looking for the shortcut. It's happened relationally many times where we're sitting with these young men or women and they'll say something to us like, I met a boy. And we'll say, oh good, you know, this is a friend we've been walking with, longing for a relationship. And we'll, in the course of the evening say, does he love the Lord Jesus? Does he make you wanna love God more? And oftentimes we'll hear something along these lines. Well, you know, not really, but there's potential there. You know, maybe someday. And if, if as we listen and encourage and we say, you know, I, I really long for you to wait for something that God has delivered to you. And we'll, we'll sometimes hear something along these lines. Do you know how long I've been waiting? I wanna be a mom and I can do the math as well as you can. I'm 30 and I've got to fall in love and get married and have babies. The window is closing on me. What do you want me to do? And all of a sudden, do you hear it in there? It's the statement, the circumstances determined the next step. I can't be patient in a moment like this. I need a shortcut. And quite honestly, in my own story for Ashley and I, when we were living in that season of just loss and sadness, much to my shame and my chagrin, my response to dealing with all of that emotion at home was to hit eject on taking care of my wife emotionally like I needed to. That path felt long and it felt hard. And the ministry I was doing, I was receiving a lot of praise for. And so you know what I did? I punted on the responsibility that God had given me and I started overworking and giving myself to it. And then I called it doing the Lord's work. That beautiful Texas two-step. And the truth was, I just liked the praise of men rather than going home to a crying wife. And I said, well, the circumstance, under these circumstances, you know, it's the best I can do. Do you feel it? Like, we, we think that our circumstances are what determine the next step. We think, how could I do anything else? And so we take these little shortcuts where God's calling us, no, 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 be a man or a woman of integrity and of character. Continue to keep your eyes on me and come with me. But we say, I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of patience. And we take a shortcut. And the struggle is this, that our quick fixes create big messes. Our quick fixes make big messes over and over and over again. We could testify one after another, couldn't we? That our quick fixes make big messes. We see it in Saul's story. In verse 13, this is interesting. Just as he's piling up all of his, excuse and his excuses and the circumstances, in verse 13, Samuel said to him, you have done foolishly. Don't you love the way a prophet just cuts through all the mess? Saul's laying out all of the reasons. Well, you know, did you see how many Philistines were and you weren't there? And he goes, Shh, you have been a fool. You've been a fool to let your circumstances determine you. And you feel like Saul in this moment is shocked back into reality. Like, and as he stands up and looks at the prophet, the prophet continues to speak over him. And what he says is this, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
what God is saying is this, that in the way that he's worked in the world, he identifies men that he forges covenant relationship with and they represent all of their lineage, all those who come after them. He did this with Abraham through you. I'm gonna bless all the families that come out of you through your family and your genealogy, right? And he's now looking for a king that he's gonna forge this sort of covenant relationship with. And what we know is that it ends up being King David such that the great high water mark of the Old Testament and the rest of the story is that everyone's looking for the son of David because the lineage of David is blessed through David's faithfulness. But Saul, because he lets his circumstances drive him, God says, all the generations after you are gonna pay the price for your faithlessness. I'm, I'm removing the blessing that could have been yours and you represented all those with you and they are not gonna receive what they were going to because of your faithlessness. You see, his quick fix has made a big mess for generations to come. And we know this. We know it. The finances, we, we take out the debt and all of a sudden it just, what we think is gonna fix it, it just makes it worse and worse. It becomes bigger and uglier and we don't wanna look directly at it because we're nervous what's gonna, what's gonna speak to us from that place or the relationships where we've given ourselves to that man or that woman or that series of men or women thinking surely this time it's finally gonna pan out and now we just have a story of sadness and of loss. Or for us, it was this recognition three years into our marriage when we moved to another city and we had to deal honestly with all that was roosting at home. And we had to come to a moment where I had to repent to my wife and she had to repent to me and say, you know, we've been sinning against one another, not handling these circumstances well. And the way that we've tended to it has, has made a mess of things. And quite frankly, God has been gracious to us, but some of that mess that was created took five and six and seven years for us to work through emotionally as God rebuilt us. You see, the quick fixes are making big messes and leaving us in this place where we are in desperate need of help. You know, it's a moment like this where you think, man, I'm glad I came to church today. This is depressing officially. Circumstances drive us, we make these shortcut decisions and now we're left with a big mess. If we are circumstance driven, we are frittering away God's potential, but that's not the end of this story. The beauty of reading this book is that if you keep reading, it's always good news. And Saul is not the last king. He's not the great king. There is a king of kings coming. And when he takes the throne, there's this beautiful reality when Jesus steps onto the scene is that when he enters Jerusalem the last week of his life, he has a similar story to Saul's. He has an enemy far greater than we could have ever imagined. It wasn't just the Pharisees and it wasn't just Rome. It was death and Satan and hell and even the wrath of God to be poured out on sin, all of it was coming down on him. It was a very dark moment that he was staring into. The enemy was great and his community was scattering, was it not? That when Jesus was arrested on that fateful night, when he was turned over, all of his disciples ran and, and, ran and hid. Peter is folding like a cheap suit in front of the servant girl going, I don't know who he is, no, I don't know. You get the sense that if there were cisterns or tombs to, be do to, to dive into, they would have done that. They're scared. And at noon hour, as Jesus is bleeding and dying on the cross for the first and the last time in the history of the world, the son surveys the landscape and the father is silent. God is nowhere to be found in that moment as he turns his face away from the sin that's been put on his son. And yet Jesus remains faithful. He leans in. 
he accomplishes all of the righteousness. And the beautiful reality is this, that he represented his lineage in that moment. That he is forging a different kind of covenant, a different sort of relationship with people that when we place our trust in him, when we bring our quick fixes and big messes and we bring them to him, what he's saying is I represented you in that moment. And I was securing blessing forever for all those that find themselves in me. So come to me, fix your eyes on me and know that I can do something with this mess that you have on your hands. Can you imagine the difference? If in the moment when Saul was watching his men scattering and the enemy is pressing in, if he had said, don't go, wait, listen to me. My God split the Red Sea. He is the God of rescue and of salvation. And he shows up for his people in the darkest of moments. Don't go, be patient and trust him. Can you imagine what it would have been like when Samuel strolled into the camp? They would have been going, yes. We knew it. We knew that God doesn't leave us and he would never forsake us. We knew that you're the God who rescues in the darkest moments. We knew it. But because of their shortcut, because of believing that the circumstances told their story, there was great shame and sadness. It's like, oh, we've missed out on the joy that would have been ours and the glory that would have been God's. You see, the invitation is for us to fix our eyes on the completed work of God's saving work at the cross, to look back and say, our God is a God of rescue. He can use your circumstances as bleak and dark and devastating as they may be. He can use them for his glory, but what he needs you to do is bring the mess to him and say, I believe you can do something with this. I'm gonna wait for you. I'm going to be patient. And as we are a Christ-centered and conviction-driven people, seeing his completed work and walking in faith, knowing he's going to show up, he's going to do something with this, we will be a people that experience all the blessing and the potential that God has for us. If we want to waste our potential, be circumstance-driven. But if you want to live into all the riches and the blessings of God, be Christ-centered and conviction-driven. You set your gaze on him and you move forward with confidence knowing that he's not done with you yet. Let me pray for us. So Father, we praise your name. You are a God worthy of praise, a God who does not wash his hands of big messes, but steps down into them to redeem them and to rework them and to make them beautiful in your timing. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came for us, that he is the great king and that he was faithful where we have all failed. Jesus, you are my only hope. I place my trust in you knowing that you can make something of all of this, all of our broken circumstances and our bad decisions gone. So I pray that everyone in this room today would have spirit-born faith, that you, Holy Spirit, would be stirring in hearts and minds, helping people to trust that you are a God worthy of trusting that you are a God that can do something with all of our mess. Help us to be a people that are Christ-centered and conviction-driven, walking with you into what tomorrow holds. For your glory, for our joy, we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.